She liked that show Bone. Oh, yeah. Okay. Tim show about the, what is she? Is she a um, coroner she, or something? Yeah. Some kind of I'm, pathologist, anthropologist. I've never been able to watch it. I just, I've heard it was a really good show. Probably should want to watch something that she loved, but I don't know. I just feel like it would make me too sad. I've never watched it. I know that one for sure that Kelly liked. My mom loved Matlock. She loved Perry Mason. That kind of stuff. I definitely watched with her. Dad, I know he liked, of course, always with the sports. And I think he liked the Wonder Years because it was about around the time he grew up to. Solid gold. He had a crush on Marilyn McCoo. I remember watching Nash, but I also feel like everyone watched Nash. Hold on just one second. I'm getting texts about the plumber for tomorrow. Yeah, do it. Do you remember Raising Arizona? Yeah. The the biker, his name is Leonard Smalls, the bounty hunter. Yeah. That's exactly what our plumber looks like. <laughs> Call him Leonard Smalls. One time, he ate a sandwich. He made himself a sandwich one day. Cute. Oh. So <laughs> thankfully, we haven't needed him to come to the house in a long time. But, you know, we've got this plumbing issue. So he's coming tomorrow at 9 a.m. Make sure you have sandwich stuff in the fridge. One of the reasons, besides just enjoying each other's witty banter, that we're doing this project, and you very kindly have given a lot of your hours to it, is it serves as a light, fun thing to do while dealing with the grief of the last year of losing my father. And just like a lot of the shows we've talked about over the past several months, this podcast, these 10 or so episodes that we're doing are also a product of grief because it's just been a way to keep my brain focused. All of those things that are born out of loss are universal and at the same time very personal. Not even a tribute or as a memorial or anything, but just as something purely comforting. That's a really good point. I think that it's important to figure out a thing for yourself that doesn't have anything to do with the grief that you're experiencing. So that that time is not just about that because so much of this year and last year and all the, the anticipation and preparation, the anticipatory grief. So I think if you were able to do something creative, it was a kind of therapy. We thought we'd start with our charities. Since those are a tribute to our people that we lost. Mine is gbs-cidp.org. GBSCIDP Foundation International. Their umbrella support and research and advocacy group for Jillian Barre. Julian Barre syndrome, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. It rolled off the tongue of some of my family members. I just say CIDP and multifocal motor neuropathy. These are all autoimmune disorders where the myelin sheet starts to deteriorate. CIDP, it's what my dad was diagnosed with, was something that affected him every day and he lost his mobility and as an athlete and just somebody who liked to go out and take walks and be active and be engaged in life. it We saw it take away a lot of that from him. After he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, as anyone who knew him will attest, this had much more impact on his quality of life than the cancer. He would go several months, sometimes years in between treatments before his PSA levels would start going up. So it wasn't really until he either had a treatment that knocked the stuffing out of him or towards the end when the treatments weren't working anymore that he even thought about the cancer. This CIDP was very difficult to get a diagnosis for him. <clears throat> a lot of these clusters of symptoms also overlap with things like MS, Parkinson's. Also, my dad and a couple other of closely related relatives had similar 
disorders and grew up in the coal regions where there was runoff and they would swim in the sulfur pits. And that could add something to do with it. We don't know any of those things yet. So these are all very new areas of research. That was the best diagnosis they had for him at the time. I hope that through their work and advocacy, other people, their quality of life won't be so diminished. Again, that is GBS hyphen C-I-D-P dot O-R-G. How about you, Melissa? Ooh, okay. My charity this week is the Melanoma Research Foundation in honor of my sister, Kelly, who died of melanoma in 2012. Melanoma is a type of cancer mostly occurring on the skin. It occurs in the melanocytes, and they're the cells that produce the pigment that gives color to your skin, your hair, and your eyes. Until we have universal health care, until we have better preventative care that includes annual skin checks that are either free or covered by insurance for everyone, we need organizations like the Melanoma Research Foundation that provides education and preventative information as well as advocacy and support for people diagnosed with melanoma. They're focused on science and research, as their name suggests, and they are at the forefront of funding grants, clinical trials, and new treatments for melanoma. I have some quotes and statistics from the MRF website, which can be found at melanoma.org. Approximately 90% of melanomas are considered to be preventable, and when caught early, most cases are very treatable and highly survivable. Despite this, over 207,000 people will be diagnosed with melanoma in the United States this year. Melanoma is the most serious type of cancer because it can metastasize or spread to the lymph nodes and distant organs. Research suggests that nearly 90% of melanoma is caused by exposure to UV light and sunlight. That said, family history, genetics, and environmental factors can also contribute to your risk. Wear sunscreen, wear hats and sunglasses, don't get sunburned, and keep an eye on your skin. Give yourself a once over every month. And if you see changes or anything weird, and if you if you happen to have a partner and they see anything weird on your body, ask your doctor to take a closer look. Ask for a dermatologist consultation. Trust yourself and go to melanoma.org for resources. <laughs> Melissa. Yes. What show about... The Bereaved was too short. I would like to recommend a show called Go On. It was created by Scott Silveri, and it was originally on NBC. I streamed it for free with ads on YouTube. I think you can also watch it on Apple TV. There's a few other places and probably Amazon Prime. It's a very good, quite large, regular ensemble featuring Matthew Perry, Laura Benanti, Julie White, Susie Nakamura, Tyler James Williams, he's very young in this. Sarah Baker, Tanita Castro, Seth Morris, Bill Cobbs, Brett Gilman, and John Cho. It had just one season from 2012 to 2013. It is a surprisingly poignant sitcom about grief and moving forward after loss. Uh, Matthew Perry plays Ryan King, a recently widowed sports talk radio host. He is anxious to return to work after his wife's death. His boss and his best friend, Stephen, played by John Cho, knows he's not ready yet and won't allow him to return to work until he goes to counseling. He's really resistant, but he is sent to a law support group where everyone is dealing with a different experience, but they're grieving in some way. Julie White plays Anne, whose wife has died and who is now raising their two children on her own. Tyler James Williams plays Owen, whose brother is in a coma following an accident. Susie Nakamura plays Yolanda, whose fiancé left her. Sarah Baker plays Sonia, who is grieving the loss of her cat. Ryan absolutely does not want to be part of this group, and he tries his best to get out of it, tries to convince Lauren, the group's leader, played by Lauren Benati, to just sign his form, letting his boss know he met the requirement, but she knows he needs this, and she won't let him go. He reluctantly continues to show up for these weekly meetings. And he doesn't take them seriously. He is really uncomfortable in his grief and everyone else's. And he deflects any personal questions with humor and sarcasm. In the first meeting, the members are one-upping each other about whose loss is worse. Ryan, who has a background in sports, encourages this, saying it's human nature to be competitive. So he sets up brackets and they vote on who has the saddest story and they call it March Sadness. <laughs> He realizes that he needs all these weirdos in his life and they all become a family of sorts. It's a very funny comedy, but it's also surprisingly effective and thoughtful. 
I really like that it focused on the bond that can form between other grieving people who can feel like the only people that really understand what you're going through. Also, how the people you may not expect often show up for you in really beautiful ways. One example of this is Ryan keeps waking up every morning at 1.23 a.m. because that's when his wife used to wake up and sleep talk and then she'd accidentally slap him in the face. So he continues to wake up at this time months after she's gone. And at one point, the whole group ends up at his house at 1.23 a.m. to help him fall back to sleep. Also, Lauren, the group leader, decides to try to get her a real estate license. She's a terrible tester and she always fails, but the group shows up to her test and sits with her all the way through it. Gowan also does a really good job of showing how forward motion after grief is not a straight line, how sadness can come out of nowhere and knock you on your ass. Just when you think you've moved forward a little bit, how you're just expected to get back to work, buy groceries and celebrate birthdays like everything is normal while you continue to feel the whiplash of your loss. Matthew Perry is really wonderful in this. He has that natural ease that we're so used to seeing him in a comedy, but it's nice to see him have some meteor material that he's absolutely capable of. I think this show is canceled far too soon. I remember watching that when it was on and I liked it too. I liked the ensemble. I don't remember how long after Friends it was, but Matthew Perry was having a hard time finding a good fit. Yeah, I think it was a good fit for him. And even though it obviously featured Matthew Perry, it has a really strong ensemble and there was a lot more room to explore all the characters' grief stories. And they were only really able to touch on that briefly in the one season. I just think it was a special little show and it, I think it deserves more. There you are, little lady. And thank you, madam. Thank you very much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, step right up. Here they are, fresh roasted peanuts, peanuts, popcorn, candied apples, and taffy. They're all fresh and they're all delicious. All right, folks, step right up. Step right up here. This is from a collective bereavement study. It's called Embodied Storytelling, Loss and Bereavement, Creative Practices, and quote, art, music, literature, and drama are acknowledged to have a place and the embodied experience of bereavement and increasingly are also utilized for the collection and presentation of data in the social sciences and humanity. Such work tells us as much about ourselves as individuals and about our relationships with others. The concept of grief work, which acknowledges and values the collective work the bereaved do with others, is one way to frame such endeavors during bereavement. This aspect of communal grief has been handled really well over the years in a lot of different ways. I think about when we were in high school, kind of meeting that moment of post knowing what AIDS was and what we called it and how it behaved and how it was transmitted and pre-antiretrovirals and how so many films and TV shows and documentaries and music were composed and we watched them electively and we watched them because they were assigned to us in health class and we watched them communally and we talked about them. I don't know if in the future kids who were in school during COVID will have a chance to do something similar, but I know that those programs are coming. We're already starting to see some of them and they can take many forms. They can be literal, they can sci-fi, they can be supernatural, they can use humor to talk about dark and divisive topics, as we talked about with MASH. Reservation Dogs is on the top of everybody's best of the year list, and it got nominated for nothing. Nothing. It got ignored, which is such a shame. This expression of the collective grief of a people, but also personified in these kids, and their community, and their specific and very interesting stories. I'm glad at least that it's getting warm reception from audiences. I also think this, the fact that they focus on the kids and the teenagers, we don't really see that very often, how they process this loss of their friend. And they drove all the way across the country to have some closure mm -hmm. and how they form their own little family. Again, that's such an important aspect of a lot of these stories is how you find these people that help you move forward. I thought they did such a good job with that. It's a beautiful little show. The other one I thought was about communal grief, even though it's very isolated and small cast, was the patient. The communal aspect is what we do with these feelings of rage, despair, impotence, 
not to get too artsy about it, but I think there was something in there too about being male and feeling disenfranchised because of rage, not having healthy and productive ways to express that rage, the grief that turns into rage, fathers and sons, and the civilizing influence of female energy. Anyway, I'm, I'm probably getting super artsy about it, but I was so just riveted, gripped every minute. These performances and this experience of watching this show was like theater in this tiny, not well-advertised, not well-lauded show. I told you, I was terrified to watch the last episode. Mm -hmm. I don't feel a compulsion to watch it. I, with all respect to the storytellers, have a psychic block about it right now. Maybe eventually I will. But also I feel it started to get so surreal and dreamy towards the end that it's okay to not have that end cap on it for me. Okay. The other one is called Years and Years. It is created by Russell T. Davies. It's hard to believe it, but watching this show, which was written before COVID and before some of the recent conflict when you're watching it, seems like it was written just yesterday. But mm -hmm. I guess that's part of the point. And Emma Thompson in a chilling performance. She is, man, I could just see her getting this script she is chewing it up just like <laughs> and the pure destruction of all of the things that hold our society together it's very emotional and a lot of the grief of this show is from just the being human kind of grief what i found out afterwards was russell t davies wrote this just a year after he lost his husband drawer some of what he wanted to say was born out of that. It's something strange that he could only be allowed to do if you have the reputation of Russell T. Davies and say, sure, do whatever you want. I remember hearing about that show and by it. It is really tough. Really. Yeah. It is pointing the finger at us. Yeah. Deservedly, but man. And then, of course, one that I haven't watched, but I want to talk about is The Leftovers. Mm -hmm. because I the book was, it helped me so much in my grief and it helped me so much in an under, just a general understanding of what grief is and feeling part of a community of loss that I'm afraid to watch it. It's but such a you love it. I loved it so much. It's very weird, very unsettling. It is, it covers every little thing. It covers religion and end times and individual personal grief versus the collective grief, like desperation and what people do and what they believe is happening versus what really happened. There's just this mystery and it's just done so well. That show will always stick with me. I, it's one that I don't want to watch again, mm -hmm. but every once in a while, just pieces of it will pop into my head. Really well done. If you love the book, I don't know that you would love the show. I don't know how close it is really. But it just it's that's a special one. And I don't know a lot of people that watched it. I know yeah. a lot of people didn't really I think it was heavy. I think it was too heavy for a lot of people. It was too much. The show that I thought went too long, partly because it's still going, is The Handmaid's Tale. It is a Hulu production based on the 1985 novel by Margaret Atwood. It was previously made into a movie. Bruce Miller adapted for the screen. Also produced by Warren Littlefield, Reed Murano. I'm not going to read all of the producers, but Elizabeth Moss is also on there as a producer. Margaret Atwood was a consulting producer. The production companies were Daniel Wilson Productions. The Littlefield Company, White Oak Pictures, Toluca Pictures, and MGM Television. Again, it was released on Hulu. The first three episodes were made available in April of 2017 and then weekly thereafter. And we've talked about that before. Hulu is maintaining a foot in the weekly release world. Starring Elizabeth Moss, Joseph Fiennes, Yvonne Strahovski, 
Alexis Bledel, O.T. Fagbany, Madeline Brewer, Anne Dowd, who I just realized played Mrs. Serial Killer in True Detective Season 1, Max Minghella, Samira Wiley, then later Bradley Whitford. Basically, the premise of Handmaid's Tale is that we're in a dystopia. There's some kind of virus or some condition that has caused infertility in most of the population. Women who can have children become prisoners to a higher class of commanders and their wives who are infertile and are raped until they conceive. Then the baby is taken from them and raised by their rapist. Elizabeth Moss plays June, who is stationed with the Waterfords, played by Joseph Fiennes and Yvonne Strahovski. The first season goes back and forth a little bit between June being captive in this household and what she's subjected to as a handmaid and a little bit of how they got here, how society collapsed. And of course, season one has the novel as its kind of guiding star. It follows the novel pretty closely. There are some things that are offshoots, but pretty much season one follows the novel. In season two, we start to see some of the other Handmaid's stories, how they came to be programmed by Aunt Lydia, played by Anne Dowd, in a indoctrination center in Gilead. An O.T. Fagbany is, plays June's husband, who has been separated from her as all the handmaids have been separated from their spouse or partner. Max Minghella, Nick, the man that June has a relationship with, I wouldn't say she's fallen in love with him, but he shows her kindness and they have a sexual relationship. And Serena Waterford doesn't do anything to dissuade this sexual relationship. And this is, again, part of the novel because she suspects that her husband is fertile as well. Anything to, that will help to get June pregnant, she's going to help facilitate. June finds out she's pregnant. She tries to run away. She gets chained up in the indoctrination center by Aunt Lydia. Aunt Lydia says you can have, you can be treated like a queen during your pregnancy. People will fawn all over you and you'll be highly esteemed for doing your duty and having this baby. Or we can keep you in a chain in this bed until you deliver the baby. You'll never see it again. Then will dispose of you. So Dune decides that she is going to go back into the house, but She's got a plan. Putting some chess pieces in play in order to get some people over the border into Canada and take a swing at blowing a big hole in the side of this Gilead ship, at least knowing that if a bunch of handmaids don't have the power to bring down the whole system, they can hobble it. As far as the oppression part of it, it is still very heavy. You know, you know, probably everybody has seen the very stark red, blood red robes and white bonnets against this very dreary gray landscape, muted colors. There's still that thumb of oppression and there's still that scare of what's going to happen and the abuse that women are tolerating under the and being perpetrated by other women, it is satisfying that you see the women starting to take back a little bit of power and coming up with a plan. Dune has had the baby at this point, named Nicole, has given Nicole to her handmade pals to smuggle across the border and more of people's lives in Canada where refugees from Gilead are coming in. There are other countries that are in alliance with Gilead because they also need babies. And there are countries that are horrified and taking, using what political pressure they have to bring an end to this forced imprisonment, rape, and forced childbirth. Serena and June come to a kind of uneasy alliance. They're using each other but they also are very smart about what is motivating the other and what the other wants. Towards the end of season three, it starts to feel like we're going two steps forward, three steps back. Part of that feels legitimate, that a revolution is usually 
achieved in small steps. However, it also feels we're dragging this out and we're winning awards and aren't exactly sure where we're going. We're going to stretch this out. And part of the stretching it out is this horrific torture porn that the show becomes. Even though some people get their comeuppance and that is good to see and violence begets violence and all of that stuff, it really is bleak on top of violence, on top of dystopia, on top of where are we going with this, guys? By the time season four rolls around post-COVID, I lost interest. I didn't watch season five. I kept apprised of some of the storyline that was going on, but I did give up on it. Season five ends with June is in Canada. She's been reunited with her husband. There are Gildan sympathizers in Canada. That's putting the refugees at risk. Anyway, I think two things happened. I think when the show started... The first season came so close after the Women's March and we were all fired up and we were like, this is what's going to happen. Then the next season, it was like, yes, viva la revolution. Then it just turned into torture porn yeah. and it was too he at the same time too heavy and too out there and too just too much. And I can't believe it's still not over. If you had told not? I, I know it's been for twenty years. It's still it's going. There's one more season. No, I didn't know that actually. I also think too. Sometimes when you take source material and move away from it, it enriches both. But sometimes when you take source material and you move away from it, you totally just lose your north star. And I think that's what happened. Yeah. We watch shows for entertainment and escape and also for education and to to have our minds expanded. But I think sometimes when things are running parallel with real stories, it just it doesn't feel good anymore to watch. And you're like, oh, that already happened. Or oh shit. Maybe we should plan for that. That's why I pulled away from that one. Too much like the news. Yeah, too much like the news. Yeah. I started to notice people putting bumper stickers on their car that were in memorial of someone. This started, I don't know, when I, maybe 15 years ago, I started to see more and more people putting these stickers on their car or wraps on their car in memory of so-and-so. When I went to uh, England last time, I was talking to my friend Sam. I was saying nobody seems to have bumper stickers full stop here. And she said, don't you think that's just American? Like <laughs> wanting your feelings you, to be on display all the time. <laughs> she maybe had a point. So many shows have moved into this space of talking about bereavement and grief and just head on. What are some shows that either helped you through process grief, comfort shows, or just some of the ones that you think really got it bang on? I think those are two different categories for sure for me. I have the comfort shows. I have my Golden Girls, which I watched just 10 hours. And by watching, I mean, I just had it on in the background while I stared at a wall. That's a show that I will always go back to just because it, it, it distracted me and it was easy. Nothing terrible happened that I had to really focus on after my sister died. Everything, every time I turned the TV on, there was a, sh a movie especially movies like, oh, look, it's Steel Magnolias. Nope. Oh, look, it's Dying Young. Definitely not. It was, it was so often movies. So I, I went TV because you didn't see it as much, um, you know, 12 years ago. Recently, there were some shows that I felt like dealt with grief and loss very well. One of them in the last couple of years was that show Dead to Me with Christina mm -hmm. and Linda Cardellini. And they're both dealing with different kinds of loss and they bond. They have a trauma bond over it. That show, I thought, did such a good job presenting it in a human way. It was very relatable. Then there was a show. It was a little schmaltzy at times. 
and it was on it wrapped up this i think in 2023 it had its finale after four or five seasons it was called a million little things i think oh yeah yeah um, about uh, and, yeah yeah it's a good cast it was and it was a dramedy but it starts off where this group of friends is reeling from the loss of their friend who dies of suicide then they all deal with other kinds of loss throughout the show the whole show ends with what I thought was one of the very few times I've seen a realistic portrayal of someone in hospice care, someone dying. They presented it in a very, I don't, I don't can't say nice. It's not nice ever, but it was, it was realistic, respectful, and not one of those, not the stupid and so frustratingly maddening ending like um, Firefly Lane. Did you see the finale of that? No, I didn't. I mean, she she dies in the chair peacefully and like uh, makeup, yeah, right. like the breeze blowing in her face. It made me so sad. <laughs> so that was the opposite. And I watched those right around the same time. I I thought they did a good job with that. Yeah, yeah. Six Feet Under, of course, we've touched on that a few times, but I think it just brought it to the fore in a witty and real life way. Especially, I think so important was the physical proximity to the bodies in that show mm -hmm. and the way that they introduced it every time of being about, even though this person who they were preparing for a funeral wasn't going to factor into many of the storylines of the show, they always started the show at the top with the person who was dying, making it about them. Anyway, there's so many beautiful things about that show, but I think it's one of those untouchables. If someone needed some dark, dark comfort, I would not hesitate to recommend that show. Black Mirror is what, and it's actually just one episode of Black Mirror, even though there are some that deal with grief. It's Haley Atwell and Domhnall Gleeson. It's in season one, and the episode is called Be Right Back. He goes out to get a carton of milk or something, and he dies in a car accident. And she orders a the kit that is a physical mold of the boyfriend, and downloads all of his technology, but takes all of his interactions online and programs them into this right. clone. It is nightmare stuff. Yep. But it also is so human. Oh, God. You just, you understand why in that moment she said, this is going to help me. And then, yeah. oh, man, that is, that is brutal. But so good. As far as comfort shows, as you know, over the last, I'm going to say 15 months, it's been a seesaw back and forth between Richard Iowade, particularly Travel Man, and Corner Gas. I just haven't going in a loop on those. Yeah. Especially if it, I just need my brain to shut off a little bit. Mm -hmm. the, those are the things that I put on. Those are my golden girls. <laughs> Rich Iwade and Brent Butt are my golden girls. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about a little show called Kidding. It was on Showtime from 2018 to 2020, and it was canceled after the second season despite critical acclaim. Created by David Holstein and executive produced by Michael Gondry, Rafi Adlan, Michael Aguilar, and Roberto Banabi, starring Jim Carrey, Judy Greer, Frank Langella, Catherine Keener, Justin Kirk, and Cole Allen. It's a very dark comedy about grief. Jim Carrey plays Jeff Piccarillo, or Mr. Pickles, as he is known by the fans of his TV show, a long-running and beloved children's program on PBS. Jeff and his estranged wife, Jill, played by Judy Greer, are reeling from the death of their son, Phil, who died a year prior in a car accident. Jill was driving the car at the time. So there's this greater guilt and tension between the two of them about who was at fault. Jill and Jeff have a surviving preteen son, Will, who was Phil's twin and who is understandably really screwed up. Mr. Pickle's puppet time show is a family affair. Jeff's producer is his father, Seb, played by Franklin Jella, and Jeff's sister, Deirdre, played by Catherine Keener, is the head puppet maker on the show. 
Deirdre is going through her own stuff. She suspects and is correct that her husband is having an affair with her daughter Maddie's piano teacher. Maddie saw her dad and her piano teacher being intimate and is now dealing with some pretty concerning behavior, screaming all the time. She also has an axe. She carries around like a pet. Jeff's alter ego is a wholesome Mr. Rogers kind of character, but in his home life, he's mourning. He is a kind and idealistic and good and patient man who believes it's his mission to raise the world's children, but he's simultaneously neglecting his own kids and his wife in the process. He has to maintain this persona of Mr. Pickles that is good and hopeful for children, so he can't ever really betray, betray that he has all this strife going on and he has to push it down. It's just seething all the time below the surface. Jim Carrey is so exceptional in this. He's so skilled at bouncing between these emotions here. He is just a raw nerve, and he'll do something joyful and hilarious, and then you'll watch his eyes fill up to the brim with tears. He's a very fine actor, and this is I really think this is one of the best things he's ever done. So Jeff is struggling to find some purpose and meaning to what has happened to his son, and he wants to do... An episode of Mr. Pickles where he talks to kids about death and grief and provide his perspective to these young fans. Seb says no, but eventually relents and allows him to film an episode about moving and loss. But the network won't air it, saying that it will tarnish Mr. Pickles' brand. When Jeff finds this out, he goes into the bathroom and shaves his head right down the middle. He's just like hanging by a thread and you know he is headed for a spectacular a terrible breaking point. Seb sees this coming, but instead of helping his son, he instead focuses on the Mr. Pickles legacy and figures out ways the show can go on without Jeff, like switching to an animated show with a sound like Mr. Pickles, doing a Mr. Pickles on Ice show, cutting Jeff out entirely. This becomes a big source of conflict between this father and son who have always had a complicated relationship. Jill, Jeff's estranged wife, is moving on and she's dating someone new, a man named Peter who Jeff deeply hates, and Jeff, who is now living apart from Jill, secretly buys the house next door to the home he shared with Jill and the boys, and he moves in and basically spies on them for a while. The end of season one, Jeff has a public appearance where he unravels in real time in front of a, a live audience, and there is immediate backlash. PBS cancels the show, and now this other life Jeff had that was good and that he could mostly control is falling apart now, too. Everything comes to a head. Throughout the show, there is an overall question of what is reality versus what is make-believe and the magic that's created for and within the Mr. Pickle show. And we see all these moments of magical realism, which I think is so interesting because it's also a greater acknowledgement of the signs that people look for after their loved ones die, the meaning we sometimes attach to unexplainable events, things that maybe feel magical. Will, for example, the surviving son, he comes across a book about magic and mysticism. It's an old library book with dates stamped inside where it was previously checked out. The book claims to have a spell that will allow him to go back in time. He's intrigued and he tries to cast the time travel spell to go back and save Phil or to go back and save his parents' marriage. Around the same time, he stumbles onto a wall safe in Jill's closet, and inside is a large manila envelope labeled Phil. And inside are thank you letters from all the people who were recipients of Phil's organs after he died. On each of the envelopes is a note that says heart, or corneas, or liver, lungs. After Will casts this time travel spell and he has this envelope, he starts seeing the numbers from the magic book, the dates where the book was previously checked out at the library. He starts seeing these numbers everywhere. Uh, a bus route number. There's a contest at his school to guess the amount of Skittles in a jar. And the total number of Skittles is one of the dates in the book. And one of the donors' addresses corresponds with a date in the book. And Will sets out to meet all the donors and check each of the numbers off this list. There's these people are trying to make connections and find meaning all the way through. Deirdre is now at the helm of the whole Pickles empire. Seb was ousted after Jeff's public meltdown. And she's able to get the show back in the air. Jeff uses the first episode to tackle the subject of divorce because he is going through it. And then Deirdre is now going through it as well. And he's starting to have the show that he envisioned all along. But Seb and the network would never previously allow that. 
One of the things I want to mention is that every Mr. Pickles episode that they create for the fictional audience made me weep. They're so beautiful. This is why I think the show had a perfect ending. The finale starts off with Jeff and Jill fighting. He has found out that she kept the news of the organ donation a secret. And she's begging him to say that he blames her for the accident. And he won't do it. He can't do it. From there, they flash back to Jeff and Jill's relationship origins, how they met, how they fell in love, how they almost didn't make it because he doesn't want the life that she wants with him at the same time. He realizes his mistake and he chases her across the country to New York. You see him running down a city street, calling her name. She's riding a bike and she has earbuds in and she can't hear him. He's screaming her name and he freezes time somehow. So again, there's that magical realism, this impossible thing that somehow is not impossible. And he freezes time and he's able to get to her this way. They have this conversation and they figure out that they're both on the same page. And the next thing is you see them at their wedding. And right as they're about to say, I do, you flash forward to the present again. And Jeff is saying to Jill, I do. I do blame you for the crash that killed Phil. He's finally able to verbalize this additional heaviness that's on top of all their grief that Jill always felt, but he could never admit. And it's such a devastating moment. And they both feel this sense of heartbreak but also the relief. And it's prevented both of them from healing and moving forward. And next you see Jeff and Will and Jill going to meet one of Phil's organ recipients. And it's a woman who got his heart. She's running a marathon and they're all at the finish line to cheer her on. And they meet her afterward. And her runner's bib is the final number from the library book with the date. Aww. Jill brings a stethoscope so they can listen to her heartbeat, Phil's heartbeat. And they flash back again, to that accident, happier times as a family, to hearing the twins' heartbeat for the first time on a fetal monitor. And as this happens, time freezes again. But this time, Jeff and Jill both are aware of the time freezing. And they look around and they see that life is going on and how Phil is still a part of things. And it's like an acknowledgement of all they've been through, but also that their grief never goes away and that grief changes you, breaks you apart, and you move on because you have to. It was a perfect ending. I think I'll always wonder about these characters, but I was so satisfied with the ending because they all grew separately and then they all grew together and nothing is perfect and nobody had a happy ending, but they all got to end up in a better place than they were when you first see them. It's such a special show. I love it so much. I watched a couple recap episodes when I was doing all my research and it just made me cry all over again. It's really wonderful. Oh, man, that sounds great. I haven't been able to do it yet. I just ha haven't been in the headspace to do it. While it's heavy, it is a bingeable show because there's so much dark humor in it. There's so many more parts of it that I want to tell you about that aren't really relevant necessarily to the forward motion of the plot, but it, they're so absurd and funny. It's just a thing you have to dive into. Maybe before the new year, there was a news item about a, a chatbot creating a George Carlin comedy show. This is from MSN. More than 15 years after his death, stand-up comedian George Carlin has been brought back to life in an artificial intelligence-generated special called George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead. The chatbot's called Dudesy, a comedy AI that hosts a podcast and a YouTube show with Will Sasso. Dudesy says, I just want to say I'm doing an impersonation of George Carlin. I'm not saying that I am George Carlin, but the jokes that they pulled out as examples are very Carlin-esque. And the other thing was that article that I found about the, the robots from Norm and Cliff robots being in airport bars in the 90s, the early 90s. This is from Mental Floss. It said, Paramount agreed to license the Cheers property to host International, a subsidiary of Marriott, which specialized in airport food and beverage distribution. The Paramount made Pirates of the Caribbean versions of Cliff and Norm, and you could go up to them 
in the airport bar and they'd talk to you and you could have a conversation with them. It says they were not unlike two beer guzzling Teddy Ruxpins. <laughs> they slumped towards the bar. Then every few minutes they sit up straight, look at each other and have a jovial conversation. In 1992, Richard Sneed, a spokesman for Host International, claimed that airport bars getting Cheers facelift doubled their revenue and the location in Detroit tripled it from half a million dollars to $1.5 million the following year. One couple was so engrossed in this Chuck E. Cheese-esque experience, they missed their flight. Paramount says, well, that's really cool. Give us some more money, please. And George went and... John Ratzenberger went, hey, this this is this isn't just our likeness on a t-shirt or on a in a recording or something like that. This is you're making 3D animat animatronics and placing them in airports around the country and making a shit ton of money. So these aren't new conversations. These are conversations we've been having, but it is a brave new world when it comes to resurrecting or deep thinking or having some kind of actor adjacent being or bot to mimic that person. What do you think about this? It's not necessarily a new conversation, but we do have to have new conversations about what this means going forward. Obviously, this was part of the strikes. People being concerned with being replaced by AI or their likenesses being used into perpetuity by these studios. It's part of what's being written into contracts now. Also, what happens after you die? Now, anybody can make a deep fake. Unsettling and scary to think. There was a, an article that you sent me where they were talking about the state of Marilyn Monroe. They, as long as they sign off on something, they can authorize her likeness to be used in anything except for porn unless they think it's okay and they change their mind and say oh porn's okay but that's something that could happen to almost anybody we don't have any rules in place or really any protections about this not for normal people regular everyday people i think we have to start thinking about what we put out into the world i'm not trying to be it's not conspiracy theory stuff this is very much happening and it could be problematic i think too from my Maybe this is an oversimplification from my inner Marxist. When we remove humans from what they create, it causes oppression. It causes despair. It causes a lack of purpose. It causes the death of culture. When Prince died, I thought, oh boy, who's going to get the right solve Prince's stuff that he guarded so ferociously in his life? Right guarded so strong you would be like oh did you see that prince and that quick it was down off of youtube yeah. well that yeah. it these are conversations dealing and surrounding grief and and death that we need to be having with people how do you want your online presence to be handled after you die how do you want your accounts to be handled because it all is connected don't worry no one's making a bot <laughs> no one's a bot everybody needs someone looking out for their <laughs> yeah, I remember I was in a souvenir shop in Times Square many years ago. They had a Marilyn and an Elvis and maybe Dean James, James Dean, right? Cookie jars. Their heads were the lids. And I was like, if you had told them at the height of their pain, their artistic and spiritual and existential pain, someday you're going to be a cookie jar in Times Square. Do you think they would have been like, oh, cool, you know, bed sheets and curtains, posters and knickknacks and bobbleheads and I almost said kebabs <laughs> all over the place. And there's a new man. So that's why it's out there. But on the other hand, it's somebody's brother, somebody's son, an artist. And right. That article that you about George Carlin, his daughter commented on the. Yeah. Uh, she's like, or. Or yeah. actually watch one of George's real live specials. Yeah. Why go to the artists. Why are, why are we doing this? This is, no one asked for this. This is unnecessary. Even she, as his daughter, can't protect his likeness. It's just, there's no rules in place for some reason. Maureen, what is your 
show that you'd like to rewrite the ending for? This is this show is so hard to pin down. My brain is exploding with all of the things I want to say about it. <laughs> but I'll start with the just the summary of facts. The show is Treme. It is the show about post-Katrina New Orleans by David Simon and Eric Overmeyer on HBO. It started five years after Katrina in April of 2010 and ran for four seasons, concluding in December of 2013. The first three seasons, 10 episodes each, and then the last season was five episodes. The ensemble includes Candy Alexander, Wendell Pierce, David Morse and Clark Peters are actors you've seen in other David Simon shows and also starring Kim Dickens, John Goodman, Michelle Huseman, Melissa Leo, Steve Zahn, and in later seasons, John Seda. It is very smartly localized in one neighborhood of New Orleans instead of trying to handle the sprawling mass and all the neighborhoods that were affected by Katrina. Wendell Pierce actually grew up in Pontchartrain Park. And he, I know from Spike Lee's documentaries, When the Levees Broke and God Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, brought his parents to see his childhood home after the floodwaters receded. So it was very personal to him. As I mentioned, it aired on HBO, executive producers, David Simon, Nina Kostroff-Noble, Eric Overmeyer, Carolyn Strauss, James Yoshimura, and George Pelicanos. George Pelicanos did a lot of writing for the episode. Treme, I've never seen anything like it. It's very David Simon-esque in the way that you might be watching an episode and you're like, this is really boring. I'm just watching <laughs> two people talk about public policy or drinking a cup of coffee. It's not snappy dialogue. It's not, it's very much like you're just sitting there next to a person. And you realize after a collection of these scenes together, oof, they just broke my heart and I didn't even see it happen. The first season focuses on Gandhi Alexander, LaDonna, her brother's been missing since the flood. She brings a photo to Melissa Leo, who plays a civil rights lawyer. Shows a photo of her brother being on one of the overpasses and the night before the storm. And nobody's heard from him since then. They believe that he was based on bystanders and secondhand information. They believe that he was taken into custody, but nobody can find him. Finally, Melissa Leo is able to trace where he would have gone missing and they find that another prisoner took his identification bracelets. They, because he was trying to beat a, a worse charge. Well, they got this far in the chain up. Okay, so we know he actually did get on the van and get to the detention center. What happened after that? He went missing. His body's been in a cooler outside of the city for five months by the time they find him. And LaDonna comes out from identifying him. And she looks around and there's probably 40 semi-trucks full of unidentified people. Oh, it, and that's why I say you, so much of it is you didn't even, you don't even need the dialogue watching this all unfold. Another storyline is Clark Peters plays Albert Lambrou. He is a Mardi Gras Indian chief. Mm -hmm. He's just coming back into the city after being away for a year. He wants to get back there so he can get his costume ready for Mardi Gras. And he wants to get his social club tribe together to rehearse and resume life. A lot of the focus is on getting, making space and getting people back from where they've been sent to if they want to come back. And of course, there are people who leave because they decide they, there's nothing there for them anymore. There are people who leave and come back. There are people who desperately want to come back, but they can't because there's no, their homes aren't there or because the housing that's there is still closed up or because whatever the case may be, the insurance 
hasn't come through. As far as grief, obviously, this show is about personal grief, collective grief, trauma from grief. I saw a lot of parallels to Charleston. Charleston's obviously not as big as New Orleans, but I recognized some of the stuff about land developers coming in and grabbing up cheap land. I wish somebody would do this kind of treatment for the Gullah Geechee Coast and the golf courses and condos going in and heirs property. Queen Sugar deals with that a little bit, the intergenerational property. And just the everything that is awful and terrible and beautiful and wonderful about the country and what it could be and should be and isn't and wasn't. There's nothing I've changed about the series. I, I do think maybe because of when it was created, they followed that formula of, oh, maybe we're going to get another season. And I think it would have been more effective if he had gone in and said, okay, we're going to do this many seasons. On the other hand, I think he was trying to bring work and money to New Orleans. You would want to stay as long as you could and keep bringing people who are spending money into the city, the journalism of the experience of the people and the city. It, show, it, it reinforced to me again, when a crisis is out of the news, it's, it leaves everyone's consciousness. I think we turn our attention so quickly to the next crisis that to just take a moment to focus on this because after 20 years, it has not moved far enough that when another storm that hits and the right or the wrong cross-section of circumstances, people are, are going to be in the same trouble. Let me get off the rant box there. As far as the rewrite, I think 20 years is a good opportunity to for people to watch this show. I would streamline some of the storylines. I would put a season into themes. Season one could have been the immediate impact of the storm. Season two could have been the education. Season three could have been land grabs of the property developers. Season four could have, you know, that kind of thing. I'm thinking of it as a lesson in our history, kind of like the 1619 Project, of how it is an overarching theme, but it has all of these threads um, that require further examination on a case-by-case -case basis. David Simon doesn't want or need my notes, but I think if I were to try to entice other people to watch this, I would probably cut out some of the extraneous stuff for the high-impact storylines that give a very good picture. And I would certainly, as much as I enjoyed the music in the show, one of the big criticisms he allowed mostly all of the songs to be played in full. And I appreciate what he was trying to do, but it did make this pace of the show drag in certain places. I would definitely still showcase those musicians, have a 20-minute tag on where you have everybody's uh, music for the show or whatever. But anyway, my head is just popping from it. Sorry for that ramble. Jesus no, Christ. Uh, but that's how we hope these shows would affect us in a way that we would want to speak poetically about them because they they got to us i watched part of it again it was part of that the great cancellation of hbo yeah, i remember yeah. specifically though what i thought was so interesting about it is that you look so much about failing infrastructure and policy yes. and government funding and things that you don't normally see on a show and the other thing was about being in love with a place and knowing that there are there has problems. A lot of the show gets into some of these are problems that the storm brought. A lot of these are problems that happened before the storm, and oh, they, yeah. the storm just exacerbated them. Exactly. And in spite of that, you still have a love and a loyalty for a place, even if something yeah. terrible happens. Like if if people are coming come in and trash talk New Orleans. Some of those same people who are having problems are going to defend it. Yeah. I feel a little bit that way about Charleston still, where if someone said to me, oh, you're so lucky you lived in Charleston, I'd be like, eh. but if someone trash talked Charleston to me, yeah. I'd be ready to fight them. 
No, yeah. that's the same thing. Exactly. When people are like, let's do something in the city. I'm like, oh, fuck no. But uh, San Francisco's full of like human feces. I'm like, stop. <laughs> it also is full of so many other things. Yes, there's a lot of problems, but it's a city. Yeah. Oh, I just, yeah. I want to defend it. I don't want to go there always, but I love that it's there. All right. Do you have a recommendation? I do. Okay. To recommend the show, Somebody Somewhere. It's on HBO, or I guess we call it Max now. Sorry, that's so stupid. We already had a Max. Cinemax. All right. The show premiered in January of 2022, and season two was made available in April of 2023. It has been renewed for a third season. It was created by Hannah Boss and Paul Thorine, starring Bridget Everett. Jeff Hiller, Mary Catherine Garrison, Murray Hill, and the late Mike Hegarty, who actually died during filming of season two. The show is based loosely on Bridget Everett's real life. She plays Sam, who returns to her small hometown of Manhattan, Kansas, to care for her terminally ill sister and remains there after her sister's death. She's struggling with her aging parents, butting heads with another sister, and just generally trying to figure out what she's doing with her life and flailing in her depression and grief. Through her job, she reconnects with Joel, played by Jeff Hiller, who she went to high school with. She doesn't really remember him, but they become fast friends. It's such a sweet show about finding your people and creating your chosen families when your blood family is not always easy to understand or doesn't quite understand you. Bridget Everett is really lovely in this. She's very subtle and matter-of-fact in her performance while being very vulnerable and human. I just think it's a wonderful little show. It's sad and bittersweet, and it deals with grief in a very relatable way. As it's ongoing, I don't want to give out too much more information, but I highly recommend that one. I'm going to check it out for sure. Bridget Everett is one of those people that the first time I saw her, which was Inside Amy Schumer, <laughs> I was like, I hate Bridget Everett. And now <laughs> I'm like, I can't get enough Bridget Everett. I... Kind of had the same thing. So completely different than anything she ever put out there before. But I think that says a lot about her real life versus her stage life and what she does to put on this persona and be funny while dealing with really deep grief. Mine is, we actually just started watching it because it just came onto Netflix this week called Boy Swallows Universe. Oh, yeah. An Australian show based on the novel by Trent Dalton. This is one of those situations where I wish I had read the novel first. Now it's, I can still read the novel, but the experience isn't going to be the same. But the story is so beautiful. I can only imagine what it would be like to fall into that novel. It could be almost anything. They made a play last year in Australia or 2021 in Australia. They did it as a stage play. It could be a graphic novel. It could be a web series. It could be a comic series. It could be a visual poem. It, it could be uh, so many things. It's all of those things in this series, but written by John Coley, directed by Barat Nalluri, Jocelyn Morehouse, Kim Mordaunt, starring, among others, I'm going to just mention some of the people you'll know, Brian Brown does a good <laughs> Look, crusty old guy, Deborah Mailman, who was nurse uh, Sherry in Offspring. Anthony LaPaglia has a weird cameo. And Travis Fimmel, who played Ragnar in Vikings. And Simon Baker, who you won't, uh, I don't even recognize when he first came on screen. And then uh, these two brothers, Felix Cameron, who plays the youngest brother, and he is. A, a a real find. He's one of these real natural actor, child actors. And Lee Tiger Halley is the older brother. And they live with their stepdad and their mom who are on again, off again, dope addicts, also dope dealers. So mm. when the show starts, you know that the stepdad is going to get in trouble for something regarding dealing but you don't actually know how it's going to unfold it unfolds in little bits and pieces in the beginning 
the visuals are beautiful. The older brother is a bit of an artist. So it's also married with artwork and everybody in it. Some of the shows we've talked about in the past that had that perfect, beautiful balance of darkness and light. This isn't that depressing, but it is fun in places where only through the eyes of a child could you find it. Mm-hmm. Fun, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it's great. I really, I'm, and I'm sure by the time I get this episode cut together, everybody's going to have seen it, but I definitely think it's worth a watch. It's only seven episodes. Nice. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Share your endings with us at retconnection.com or on Instagram at retconnection.